2: Hi there, I'm
3: Zach Raff And I'm Donald Faison. We're real-life best friends, but we met playing fake
4: life best friends, Turk and JD, on the sitcom Scrubs. 20 years later, we've decided to re-watch the series one episode at a time,
5: Hey, everybody. How are you doing? I'm Ray Harkins. You're hanging out with 100 Words or Less the Podcast on this fine evening, morning, afternoon, whenever it is you were consuming it. I appreciate you downloading this and putting the show into your ears because it's, uh, you know, there's a million things to do. But you've decided to spend time with this guest, and uh, both the guest and I appreciate it. And the guest this week is Ryan Patterson from Photo Crime. He also played in a bunch of other incredible bands, Coliseum, and he's just been very active within the music scene for many, many years. He's a true DIY lifer, as I like to call them. And uh, I just, I I love him. (laughs) I think he's an incredible human. And uh, I was excited to uh, have him on the show because Photo Crime has a new LP called South of Heaven that is out on March 13th on Profound Lore Records. And if you want to go way back in the archives, I actually had uh, Chris from profound lore, I think it was an episode nine or something. It was forever ago, but I love the label. Love the fact that Ryan and Chris are working together and, uh, so much good stuff. They already have some singles out, so you can stream them on Spotify, hop into the show notes of this very thing. And you can, uh, you can click on that and be able to listen to the music because, uh, it's really, really good. And, uh, Ryan has some amazing insights to share. And, uh, yeah, I'll talk about that in a minute because you know, what's coming, right? You can email the show, 100wordspodcast at gmail.com. I always appreciate the feedback, uh, good, bad, everything in between, or if you just want to start a dialogue and be like, hey, I, I, I like the show, or hey, I think you're dumb, here's this thing. <laughs> here's here's how I change it up. I also want to make a mention that this week I appeared on the Punk Rock NBA podcast hosted by a good friend of mine named Finn McKenty. You can find it on Any platform you listen to podcasts, uh, we go really, really deep in the business of podcasting and just you know how this show has been able to exist for as long as it has, and all of the fun stuff that surrounds the business side of it. Because, uh, I've been doing it professionally now for about five years or so, working in the industry, that is, and I've been able to make a little money off of this particular show, and uh, you know, it just is able to. Uh, propel itself where I'm able to cover expenses and you know justify the time that I'm putting into it so anyways find that there and I appreciate Finn having me on how are you doing I'm doing great thank you for asking uh, I've been uh, you know I, I mentioned on last week's episode been kind of waiting for some some tests to come back for my wife uh, most of them have came back very positive we're waiting on one other test thing to come through in the next couple of weeks um, so yeah keep the positive thoughts going I do appreciate you you or anybody that has reached out on social media or email and said, uh, you know, they're thinking about me and the family. I really, really do appreciate that because, you know, we're all disconnected and disjointed on this weird social media, you know, internet landscape. So anytime you're able to make that human to human connection, it's really, uh, it's, it's special to me. So I, I, it's not lost anyways. um, Yeah. Let's just talk to Ryan because like I said, he is uh, a lifer. He offers up some really compelling insights. We get to talk about Louisville a lot. And I love that because I I just love that particular music scene. So here's Ryan and please check out the new photo crime record when it comes out next week. Okay. So yeah, here's Ryan.
0: (laughs)
6: can't recall and i'm sure this statement gets echoed to you often where it's i can't remember if i met you or your brother first (laughs) but yeah uh i i definitely recall once um you know i uh met you either you know via the internet or just like random shows or whatever where when the national acrobat started to come through um southern california i always helped you guys out with shows at like coos cafe and stuff like that i remember playing with you guys and doing that um the thing that always really um, attracted me about you in particular was that, uh, frankly, all the musical projects that you've been involved in, you've always, you know, they've always been, you know, uh, I guess rock in nature, but they've always been left of center. You have never done anything that is really like kind of uh quote unquote traditional for lack of a better term. Um, oh, that's good. Yeah. <laughs> and I, and at the same time, I also think it's kind of like it's weirdly in the water in Louisville, like, I think that, you know, so many bands that have come from there, like, yes, they kind of stay in a lane that people can appropriately identify them. But at the same time, it's hard to be like, oh, yeah, like, you know, like National Acrobat. It's like, oh, yeah, I guess you could call them a hardcore band and like photo crime. Like, I I, I guess you could call it sort of like, you know, <laughs> n- new wavy in a way. Um, yeah. Anyways. But the, the, the whole point of that, me saying that is um, do you I, I guess it's a large question, but like. Do you, I guess, kind of notice that from a sort of, you know, local scene per se, or has that always just been kind of like the, uh, the, the space, the headspace that you occupy? Yeah, I think for,
7: for me and, and maybe my brother as well, I think that's, that's where we come from and, and the scene, you know, I, don't know, I guess we grew up in the nineties hardcore scene here. So it was this wild mix of everything. And that maybe bands might have been in a specific lane, but you go see a show and it would be like, uh, I remember seeing, I can't remember if it it was maybe a veil. It was like a drum machine, two piece open. that was kind of God fleshy and then like a full on metal band and then a veil played. And I remember seeing, you know, just wild bills of bands in Louisville. And it wasn't about specific genre. Like uh, big wheel was the singer of squirrel baits band in the nineties. And they would open hardcore shows like my high school band played with, you know, we opened and then it was like big wheel and then guilt. And so it was this thing. So I, I think that kind of affected us. And also probably even more than that was the fact that we grew up completely isolated from any music scene or any culture, but you Evan and I grew up in a small town called Elizabethtown Kentucky It's like an hour south of Louisville, but when you're a kid and you can't drive it might as well be
6: Mars you know, yeah a <laughs>
7: hundred miles yeah you know so it's so we just you know or I got into music through skateboarding and through whatever tapes were available at the local shut like local store and the malls so I, I was thinking actually this weekend for some reason that I'm really fortunate to have gotten into punk in this period where I kind of discovered in a a very chronological way. It was kind of like, you know, Stooges, Damned, Ramones, Sex Pistols, and then Onward, um, because that was what was readily available. And then once I got into Discord, none of that stuff is normal or straightforward. And so I think that kind of skewed vision is always in my brain. And, you know, I don't, you know, I never wanted to do, the obvious thing or the straightforward thing. And, you know, it's funny you mentioned rock. I do feel like there's a, I have a desire to be drawn to melodic music, but I kind of have a deep distaste for straightforward rock music. I mean, it's like, I like Led Zeppelin, but I, when things boogie or like, you know, when, when, when pop gets too straightforward, It just kind of loses me, which is funny because I am a very straightforward person in my tastes of writing and listening, but it still has to have this, this off kilter edge
6: in there somewhere. Sure. No, I totally get what you're saying. And I I think that, you know, something you said in there that I think, you know, really struck me is the fact that, um, You know, when you are, uh, you know, a younger person getting into a particular style of music, um, you're you're mostly devoid of context. You know, you're just it's instinctual. You listen to something and you like it. You don't really, um, you know, apply it directly to a quote unquote scene, as it were. Where I think, to your point if you were completely immersed in a scene your that influences you know your opinion on certain music just because it's like oh like you know it's either my friend's band or you know like it, it, and that's not a bad thing per se it's just the uh you know you're allowed to kind of explore more musical landscapes when you're just you know <laughs> poking around you're like oh yeah i like I, I like offspring and i like egghead and you're just like what that doesn't make any sense but like it right like, it, it, because you are young and you're just like, well, yeah, I like it all. Um, you know, it, it makes it easier for you to navigate that.
7: Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think that freedom of not having the, the norms uh, of a scene or of, of anything is great. And I, and I really, really appreciate the fact that I and my friends, my brother were able to just build our own thing in this small town. And we were just, we were just, Freaks, You know, we were just like small town Kentucky weirdos. Like we skateboarded and played music and, you know, got like got into weird shit and just had a great time. And, um, you know, the local video store had a, a section that was cult movies. And that was like the 400 blows and evil dead and decline of Western civilization. And we just devoured that. And that was our also another opening to the outside world. So, yeah, I think if I'd grown up in Louisville, it would have been a very different thing. Because if you wore a certain type of pants to a show, you'd get made fun of, you know. Or, you know, I mean, I, I know kids that grew up here that got beat up at shows and things like that. And I didn't have any of that. Like I, I, I grew up in like a very supportive small town environment where like every kid, we were all just immersed in this idea. We put on basement shows, and it was. It was really cool. I mean, I, I really appreciate that, and I, you know, it's that kind of beauty of like the pre-internet age too. You know, because as soon as we discovered bands, we aped those bands. You know, it's like as soon as we discovered <laughs> right. '90s emo core, we started horrible '90s emo core bands. Like we weren't equipped to do it, but we wanted to do it because that's what we liked. Um, so yeah, that's that's really cool, and that's that's uh, I appreciate that, and I've always kind of connected deeply with other people that i've known especially from the south and from my general area that grew up like that that didn't grow up in a city that dictated how punk should be
6: operated yeah no totally i get that and i think i mean for for me being you know kind of raised in southern california like i really attached myself to particular scenes or was just always eternally fascinated by louisville because of um the diversity of sounds and like how just you know the wide palette that most bands operated in where it was like, Oh yeah. Like, you know, I, I, I like Elliot's and I like guilt. I like all of these weird things. And then the fact too, I was always really impressed. Like, you know, once bands like, you know, in point were existing and drawing like massive crowds, I was always like, that is so crazy. It's like, you know, they're playing whatever, three, 400 kids. And when you kind of see that, it's really, you know, influential in the fact that like, oh yes, like these bands can exist and, you know, not like from a career perspective, but just like, oh, there's a supportive scene around it.
7: Yeah. I think also it, it, well, there is that thing like, Louisville is this super cheap, detached from popular society place. Like even trends here, like every trend kind of hits here way later than everywhere else. Like in, you know, whatever's popular in the big cities and everywhere will like, there'll be 10 of those bands here five years later. Um, And bands don't come here because there's not a huge, a huge population to draw from. There's not a promoter paying a lot of money for bands to come. So it's odd that maybe there might be five to 10 shows a year here that I want to go see. It's kind of wild. Uh, You know, that aren't like local bands or friends or something like touring bands. So that's, pretty odd but it's also and then granted that was different in the 90s but it's a really cheap place to live and and there's no hope for success here so you just do what you want to do without without any like thought of will this catch on can I go on tour or whatever and then inversely bands like my friends that were a generation ahead of me in music and then my bands my brother's bands our only hope to do anything was to get out of town. So that was like our focus. Like I've never had any focus on breaking through in Louisville. It's like, it's been the place you played because it was home, but you know, my goal has been outward, you know I mean? Like with Photo Prime, I have more interest in Europe than I do the Midwest, you know? And so I think that's pretty cool. Um, and, and, And yeah, all these bands definitely helped me that, like Squirrel Bait and, and Gilt and, you know, all those bands were just wild. And there were bands that no one ever heard of. Like I was mentioning that drum machine two piece, they were called Pulse. And it's funny that that was one of the first shows I ever went to. And and later on I thought, Oh, wow. Like that really normalized seeing a band with a drum machine really early on when I was like 13 or 14, I was like, cool. This band has a drum machine, you know? And it wasn't like something I'd never seen. So all that mixture is just amazing. And it's like this weird arts community that's kind of a a larger version of where I grew up where it's just like you build your own thing or it doesn't exist. You know, you put on a show, there's no show. So that's what gives us that weird, like
6: detached vibe of of art and and culture, I think. Yeah, no, I, I agree wholeheartedly. kind of more focused on you as an individual, Uh, like you were mentioned, you know, born and raised in a small town in in Kentucky. And the thing that I always find, you know, interesting when uh, multiple members of a family kind of travel down the road of this, you know, weirdo subculture, you know, uh, like you said, it was a supportive community as far as your friends were concerned. Um, You know, were your parents just like dude, what are Ryan and Evan getting into? Like this is, you know, skateboarding and like, not only am I having to deal with this with, with Ryan, cause you are the o- oldest of your siblings, correct? Yes. Yeah. yeah. And so like not only Ryan is, is doing this, but he's, you know, leading his younger brother and like, we just don't know what to do. Or were they generally like, okay, as long as they're, you know, staying out of trouble, it's okay.
7: Yeah. It's kind of a mixture. It's funny at the time, you know with teen angst and stuff i thought that they were really unsupportive and there was you know there were you know some arguments and there were some you know i remember being grounded for a week because i was home late from a show in louisville and and i remember having like my guitar taken away at some point as punishment and you know evan and i were were like smart kids but like obviously we didn't give a shit about school like we were making records and skateboarding and Evan was touring in high school. And so, you know, our, our grades suffered because of that, but so there was like tension because of that, but they were really supportive. Actually. My dad had a big record collection, you know, he's, he's a guy born in 1950. And so he grew up and saw all the great sixties bands and has all those records and even had things like he had a clash single, you know, so that was probably my first time ever hearing punk and, somewhere deep in some like old Warner brothers, like compilation, there was black Sabbath song on there. And that was the first time I ever heard black Sabbath. And um, so I think there was this mixture of being supportive. Like they let us practice in the basement. They let us have basement shows after I bought my own guitar. Eventually they bought me a guitar for Christmas one year. And I remember them buying us skateboards and shit like that. And so, you know, they were very supportive, but yeah, it was like, we were freaks. You know, like I said, we were maniacs and right. they didn't understand any of it. Like, you know, it was the day of like baggy jeans and it was the time of like crazy stuff. I mean, I, you know, I, yeah, we were into like straight edge as kids. So there was like XXX on things and parents are like, what the fuck is that? <laughs> totally. You know? and, totally. And I remember like, you know, I think Evan, maybe me, one of us had like a shelter shirt and they're like, you know, what in the fuck is, are you Doing with like a Harry Krishna shirt, you know, like they just don't, <laughs> Yeah. so it, it's super wild. And then just like punk in general, even prior to that, I'm into like the sex pistols and things that are like really gnarly, you know, like that, that stuff is to this day is, is extremely angry and aggressive and, and pushes boundaries and pushes buttons. So, and to think that these are people that grew up through the seventies and, and heard all of this stuff from a mainstream you know media perspective that it is bad. I mean, my parents were really my dad in particular was for some reason really anti curse words in songs and would like screen my records and I would get in trouble. I never getting in big trouble for the embrace record because every other word was fuck.
6: <laughs> I don't like give a, message, I don't give a fuck about your buddy, dude
7: <laughs> right. even yeah. though the message is like the most like almost like remedial in its like, it's goodness, you know, but, yep. but it's like, you know, the curse words. And then and it's funny cause I didn't listen to metal growing up. And I always thought that how funny it would have been if I had been into metal that like how much worse it would have been. I'm like, <laughs> what if I bought Slayer records and King Diamond and right. all this kind of stuff. But instead it was like the misfits and Danzig were like the things that my parents were really freaked out by. So it was a mixture of all of it. But looking back, I, I, I see that like, they were actually incredibly supportive. Like it's kind of unbelievable. And same thing with like, uh, you know, I got into vegetarianism when I was 13 and, and, um, and my parents were really supportive. I remember friends of mine were like, you know, my parents, I have to eat like a, you know, bread with like the the cheese that comes in the plastic wrapper. That's all I eat at home. They won't, they won't accommodate me. My mom always did. She was into diet for New America in the 70s. And and I remember going to a co-op when I was a kid. So when I made that change, it was supported. And I don't remember any pushback, which is pretty wild, that like a 13-year-old kid can go vegetarian yeah. and have that support. So that's cool too. And then those are things that really stick with me. Like now, you know, growing up and having more empathy for your parents and understanding a little more of their... Their lives and struggle and and like it's it's pretty fucking cool. Yeah, even though there were rough times, there was like a lot of a lot of support as well. And and my parents are my dad's artistic, he loves music, he draws, he paints, um, and my mom is like this amazing, like spiritual, kind person. So we each got like elements of them, you know, hopefully the best and not all the worst.
2: The show is sponsored by BetterHelp.
8: You know, like but, <laughs> yeah, but that's how it
6: goes. Yeah, yeah, no, that that's cool. I really, I really appreciate that that picture you paint because it definitely, you know, it can go like you you said, you know, sort of one of two ways where it's like parents can react to the things that are unknown and they they don't have a context for and they can be terrified of it, or you know, they can see the kind of all right, well you know, our children are spreading their wings and they're becoming individuals. And like, yes, I I don't know what the message of the Bhagavad is, but, you know, as long as it doesn't harm anybody or whatever, it will, yeah, they will be able to, you know, uh, understand what is important to them. So that's really cool that they were, you know, uh, they were able to be, uh, you know, supportive while still obviously being a parent and being concerned about your well-being or whatever.
5: Band merch is what you need and band merch is what you're going to get when you go to Rockabilia.com and use the code PC. 100 words, that gets you 15% off of your order. And they are one of the best merch companies around. All officially licensed stuff. The band is paid for every single cent that goes through that system. And you are going to get a high-quality garment. You talk about shirts, sweatshirts, hoodies, scarves, posters, whatever it is. They have it, and they have it in spades. I love this company so much. You hear me proselytize about it week after week, but I promise you, your uh, your closet will thank you. Your friends will think you're cool. Like, you just immediately get an upgrade in life when you're ordering from Rockabilia. So like I said, use the code PC100Words. They have so many items. It's, it's actually fun to get lost in that website and to be able to like poke around and be like, Oh wow. I wonder what, Oh yeah. Wow. That's cool. They have this like discontinued shirt from this band and Oh wow. They also have a rad Iron Maiden shirt that, uh, you know, I've been eyeballing for quite some time. So please go to that website, tell them this show sent to you by using the code PC 100 words. And, uh, yeah, thank you for your continued support. Rockabilia Now here's the rest of the show.
7: Yeah. And you know, I think it's hard for people that come from normal society to find, what's good in boundary pushing art and to find you know, even in in things that are very nihilistic or extreme, to find what's what the point is of that. Um that's not necessarily always bad. You know, I mean that's and like I said, I didn't grow up with metal, but like that's the thing with metal. Like people identify with it because they were loners or 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 disaffected and so people that were from straight culture only saw the, the bad of that, of that, the evil, you know? And, and that's how I feel with like, you know, film and and records. I mean, I feel like I'm probably into like some stuff that's more extreme than it, than I was when I was a kid, but like, you know, even like horror films, I see horror films as being like a direct lineage from art house cinema. And that all that is about creating art, like, like, the great thing about a horror film is that there's this tactile nature, these things, these worlds people have built and, and these, this gore that people have have created with their hands. And it's the same thing as like, you know, Godard creating uh, a culture in France in the sixties, that's made from very tactile things. You know, I see those, all those things as being very closely related and, um, you know, like art that's involves skulls and all the like, you know, art stuff that I do. And, and sometimes people just don't understand that, um, that for us, it's like a a thing of beauty and it's a thing of creation and, and taking things into your own hands. And sometimes for like straight mainstream culture, they just can't quite comprehend anything that's deviating from that norm. So I've, I've some, uh, you know, i' I have, I have sympathy for that, that like that's hard definitely for parents that are trying to guide their kids in the right way
6: yeah, totally <laughs> yeah, exactly it, it, where it's like the the moment that you uh you know get into uh you know uh, Italian zombie movies and uh, Lucio Fulci and you're just like. <laughs> Oh, uh, I, this is this cannibal Holocaust. What are you talking about? This is terrible. I can't let my child watch this. Yeah. But yeah, hopefully you're obviously of age where, you know, you can at least rent that movie yourself. Well, rent, who who am I saying? Renting. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Right. But find that movie yourself. Yes. And, and kind of like you mentioned, like you didn't necessarily, uh, I I guess care about school. I'm sure you, you know, applied yourself to get, you know, appropriate grades to get the pressure off of you. But, um, did you have kind of any sort of vision in regards to, Oh, this is like my life path this is the sort of career I want to pursue. Or, you know, by that time you were obviously really, really involved in music. And that was, um, you know, took up most of your time. Uh, how did you kind of, you know, did you find yourself gravitating towards like, Oh, I'd like to be a history teacher. Or was that even on the radar? Not really.
7: Like I, I, I wanted to be, uh, a, a designer. I wanted to be a, a graphic designer. And I, there were people that that I saw that were designing records and shirts and stuff. That and you know this is like the mid '90s, so we're talking like pretty remedial days. Like this is before everybody had Photoshop or whatever. So um, there were like a handful of people that I saw their artwork, and I was like, wow, okay, this is what I want to do. And then, I mean, just you know, my, my grades were fine, and I applied to colleges all over. Like I had a, a girlfriend that moved from Kentucky with her family to Washington state. And I was thinking about going to evergreen state out there. But then I ended up, um, staying here and going to the university of Louisville for a brief moment to, and I wanted to do graphic design. And I remember them like the counselors sending me to like the only computer classes at the time were like office related things, you know, I guess like accounting and Excel or whatever was the, the, you know, similar thing back then. And so, there was, there was no computer aided graphic design art program in U of L at the University of Louisville in 1995, which is pretty amazing, you know? And, yeah. and so, and it's funny, I look back and I think, well, they should have just sent me to art classes. You know, I, I should have been, you know, I could have done illustration. I could have done all these other things that are, you know, parallel to that, but because of that, I just had no interest. I mean, I took like a film class and that was great, but, um, you know, I just wanted to do bands. So, uh, you know, I, I spent all my money on buying gear and putting out records and, you know, I thought my high school band would continue on and it like pretty much immediately broke up and I floundered a bit. And, um, then I just hung around initial records, which was based in Louisville. It started in Detroit and moved to Louisville. And, I knew most of those people because I'd done shows in my small town and brought down like Inkindle and Falling Forward and Guilt and all those bands, and so I knew all those people. And most of those people were extremely supportive of me when I was a kid. Like um, Duncan Barlow, who's in Guilt and Endpoint, and Chris from uh, Falling Forward, and later Elliot and Mark from Inkindle. Those guys were like people that like really encouraged me and responded positively to my. High school bands, horrible demos. And so when I was like 19, um, Mark from Enkindle asked me to join the band. The band was called The Kindles at the time. And I remember that like the band had kind of become uncool. Like they were a band that in high school I really loved, but then right out of high school, I was like kind of like reaching, I was in that age where I was kind of becoming. You know, too cool for myself or whatever. Yeah, and and so I thought they were kind of lame. And and he asked me to do the tour, and he's like, "We might tour." Or I asked me to join the band. We might tour Europe. All this kind of stuff. And I remember saying, "No, thanks." You know, (laughs) and I was living in in my mom's house at the time, and I told her, and she's like, "What the hell are you doing? You know, (laughs) this is a band. They're going to go on tour. They're doing what you want to do." And I was like, "Oh." okay
6: you're right yeah
7: it's really funny i don't know if she even remembers that or or if we ever talked about it but so i called him back and i was like okay yeah and so that was like the first band i actually toured in recorded an album with them and that kind of set it off and then from there soon after i i got a job at initial records and then was there for a long time and kind of went through that whole trip where i was like The zine dude, and then the full-time designer, and then the label manager, and then Andy, the owner, and I booked all the crazy fests after the, I think after the first one, I was directly involved in all the rest of those. And so, and that was pretty much it. I mean, that like set me off on my course. You know, I've never had a regular job since then, you know, I was like maybe 20 or 21 when I first started working at Initial. So yeah. I mean, it was like one of those things where I just was like, like, lucky enough to have these wonderful benefactors and mentors that helped me along. And then also just work my ass off, you know, kind of never give up and never, never like, I don't know, you know, going into
6: straight life was never an option. You right. Know? <laughs> um, yeah. It was always going to so. be the, the, yeah, the, the weirdo, uh, well, you know, quote unquote weirdo thing where it was just like, well, yeah, like I'm working for a record label and it's like, you know, most people, look at working for a record label as being like, you know, the, the suit that's flying around scouting bands or whatever. So it's like, you know, (laughs) having no context for what a record label actually is from an independent variety. It's like, Oh yeah, I guess that makes sense. But absolutely, I mean, yeah, the, the thing that I was always impressed with too, in regards to, uh, you know, initial, cause that was also, you know, really, really foundational for me, uh, you know, just kind of starting to get into, you know more styles of music, and the the thing that I always appreciated, which I know was was really um, what attracted a lot of people to Initial, was just the 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 sense of humor. Um, you know, the fact that it was like it, you could tell that everybody took uh, things seriously, as far as like, oh yeah, we want this label to you know be able to support bands and be able to support itself, and you know we'll put out catalogs, and you know we'll have photo shoots with uh, you know people wearing the shirts and stuff and you know it's quote-unquote slick but not in the way that uh, obviously like victory records was slick at that time and it, it, it seemed like a very much a antidote for uh the you know making sure that yes we're serious but at the same time like we also know how to have fun um i, I i'm sure that was in a direct sort of correlative reaction to some of the things that you guys notice out there or was that just kind of like no, this is kind of uh, the, the, this is an amalgamation of all of our personalities. Yeah. I think that, and I can't take responsibility for
7: that at all. like cause I kind of came into that, but I think that it was more of the responsibility, like, or I mean the the personality of those guys, like they, you know, Andy from initials, like a really smart guy, like a, a business dude and, and kind of analytic, but he's, he has like this really dry smart ass kind of sense of humor and Mark from I and mean, was a big part of that, that personality of initial in those days. And he was just like a a showman and a smart ass and a, and a, you know, a joker. And, and so all those people and, and their various, like other people that had kind of came and went, it was this kind of, yeah, this kind of smart ass thing. That was like, I felt like that was Initial's thing, but it was like, done in a, in a very, uh, professional way. You know, right. like everything looked nice. And like, um, so yeah, I think that was just part of that personality. That, like that kind of like Louisville kids were always wild and went on tour and did crazy shit. And <laughs> right, you know, right. like the, you know, the Kindle guys were just all hellraisers and that was like their thing. Um, yeah. So when I came in, I tried to keep that going and we did that. I mean, in hindsight, like my era, like I was a pretty shitty graphic designer. I was new to it. And, and, you know, I think the only, the only downfall with that is that sometimes I think our, our, our humor led into snark, you know, like, and that we sure. tried to avoid that. But sometimes that kind of like thing, I remember like we, we did, we would do reviews of every single fucking record in our distribution. So like our catalog. <laughs> yeah,
0: totally. Like
6: and you had, the, you you also had the symbols too, right? Yes, we had, like, I- icons of,
7: like, what they related to and, and like, uh, you know, and all that stuff. And, and it was just a massive undertaking that these catalogs that we would do quarterly were, like, we basically had to listen to and write something about every record. But sometimes it was like we were making fun of the record even though we were trying to sell it. And I remember a couple of people getting, you know, hurt about that. And, like, and this was all young people that were also, like, extremely insecure, you know. And so we were all trying to kind of, like, be funny and be smart and and do our things, but we're also like jealous little bitter turds at the same time, you know? So it was like, it's kind of wild. It is kind of a wild time, but it, it definitely like that. All that is like the absolute ground zero groundwork for me and what I do now, like my trajectory in life, like in so many ways, like would have, never been what it is without initial records. And like, you know, Andy rich who owned initial was, is a good friend still. And, but was like a, just one of those people that like believed in me and just for some unknown reason just would do anything for me and let me book my tours from, from initial, from initials phone and website and you know, email and let me design records there. And, at some point paid me on a salary. So I was getting paid even when I was on tour and, and that doorway of, yeah, you know, Hey, this is Ryan from initial records. We book the national acrobat. It, it, it opened a door, you know, it was an email address that people would respond to. And it was pretty fucking unreal. And then this guy, Kelly Cox that worked at initial got hired right around the same time I did is, uh, about 13 years older than the rest of us. And he and I are the one that, ones that did Shirt sure Killer. Uh, Kelly's not involved anymore, but uh, we were we did Shirt sure Killer. And he was another person that was like a big brother, mentor figure for me. So those two guys in particular, like, just absolutely changed my life and, and, and yeah. enabled me to be where I am now. So it's pretty fucking amazing. And it's cool that there was a time uh, that that was, that there were labels and people that could do that and that kind of that kind of infrastructure to, to bring people
5: up. You go to a lot of shows. I go to a lot of shows. Well, I don't go to as many as maybe you do because, you know, maybe you don't have these obligations like, you know, like a wife and child and all that other stuff. But what you are looking and frankly, what I am looking for is kind of a special experience, you know, like, yes, it's cool to go to shows and, you know, watch the band and leave. But sometimes you're wanting that little extra thing, whether it's a piece of merch, whether it's a, special experience, like you know, showing up before the show and having coffee with your favorite band and asking them some questions and being like, why did you do this song this way? Or why did you record with this person? Soundrink.com is the place for all VIP packages. They are an unbelievable company. They work hand in hand with the management and the band to be able to craft these custom experiences for you. This isn't just a plug and play cheesy thing that everybody band rolls out and is like, all right, whatever, we'll do this thing. It's like, no. They get into it with these bands. They create fun experiences that, you know, you toss an extra 20 bucks and you're able to get a rad silkscreen poster, or like I said, some, you know, tangible experience in regards to, uh, you know, showing up early and and hanging out with the band or whatever. So go to soundrink.com, find your local venues, find your local tours, and you will be able to not only support these bands as they're out in the road, but you know, support the scene. Okay. Soundrink.com is the best. Thank you for your continued support, gentlemen.
6: Yeah. Oh, no, absolutely. Because, yeah, I mean, yeah, like you said, there was there were so many people that were, you know, deeply affected, either, you know, like yourself, where you were, you know, in the trenches doing things from a, you know, label manager perspective, learning the ropes of the business, putting on a festival, like all of those things, um, you know, and people were doing obviously different versions of that around the country. And, you know, to allow people like, you know, frankly, under the age of 30 to be responsible for, you know, thousands of dollars and all these things where it's just like. No, like, you know, (laughs) with no formal training whatsoever, you know, it's like, oh, that's a that's a unique uh, wrinkle to obviously our subculture. And yeah, it like like you said, it was so, you know, important and uh, gave you the ability to, you know, fail, uh, I guess, safely with (laughs) without like, you know, uh, too many repercussions. Um, But yeah, it's, it's really, really cool. Two and I'm, I'm sure i mean because like you said you know at that point you know once you were able to you know have employment at the label and then you know start to be able to book tours and kind of you know get out there more um did you i guess like touring initially or did you um you know have to kind of uh, grow to like it where did you kind of sit and i guess where do you kind of sit now from that perspective as far as touring is concerned
7: you know, I love it. Like I, I have never been homesick. I've never, I've never gotten tired of touring. You know I mean? The only time I ever don't want to be on tour is like that last day, you know, when you're like, okay, it's over (laughs) just because you're in your mind, you have to do 10 steps or whatever to get home the drive or the flight or whatever. Yeah. I love it, man. It's like, I loved it as a kid. I mean, um, I feel fortunate that I, able to tour in like the pre-internet era you know it's kind of wild west ish and like that was pretty awesome and i got some like really fun wild adventures back then and then i'm like beyond blown away and fortunate that i'm able to still do it now to the extent that i do because you know i'm 42 years old like I'm, i'm i've never you know, I'm, I'm a lifer, but I've never like had any real success in music. So I just, it's, it's basically just the fact that like people believe in me, you know? So, so people kind of take risks and put out my records and, and book my shows and stuff like that. And so um, I'm insanely fortunate. I mean, I've toured Europe 13 times, 14 times, like it's fucking insane. Like um, so it's, it's just, yeah, it's just awesome. I love yeah. it. Like, I love the adventure. <laughs> you know, I think, you know, when you're a kid and, and, um, you watch movies like Goonies or Explorers or something like that, that really they're like, you know, you're, you're in your little normal life and then you step outside your home and you find this adventure that that's like beyond your comprehension. When I was a kid, I always wanted that. Like we wanted to go, look around in the woods and, and find something unique or, you know, or whatever. We just kind of dream of that. And I feel like touring is like that. It's like, you create your own adventures. You create this, this really amazing, beautiful, meaningful thing, but it's also this like magical, almost movie esque or, or novel esque trip you're on, you know? And, and it's always a little different. It's always a little the same, you know? Um, Yeah, it's just amazing. I mean, I can't even, I can't even believe how lucky I am to do it and how much I love it. Like it's, I don't, I I appreciate people that don't do it, but like it's, for me, it's kind of the driving thing in my life is to get out and travel
6: and play shows. Sure. Which I mean, ultimately ties back exactly to what you were saying earlier, the propulsion for you was always like, Oh yeah. Like get out of Louisville, like not running away from it, but like, yeah, like we're going to get out. Like that's the, <laughs> our, our definition of success is how many times that we can leave the city.
7: <laughs> Absolutely. Man. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and, and I've continued that like photo crime, you know, we toured for most of the year before we played Louisville. And that was kind of one of my goals. I was like, you know, I kind of want to like, yeah, get right. Not, right. yeah. Like not play Louisville 15 times and then go play somewhere else. Like, let's just go do this other stuff. Like, yeah. um, since yeah it's always kind of been the goal of the outside
6: world versus here um, right right yeah um and you know kind of because uh i mean for as long as i've known you and as long as i've observed your you know drive in music um you know that you've always kind of taken this sort of um workmanship discipline to the way uh that you not only do the business of the band from you know booking and all that sort of stuff um but then just your your output as very much like um you know And it's not to say that you don't derive any joy from this, because I clearly see that, but just like the uh, sort of workmanship that it takes to kind of, you know, put a band sort of out there, um, you know, in ways that uh, other people, um, you know, it it maybe seem like they're, you know, just from my perspective, like I guess less disciplined for lack of a better term. you know, do you, is that like a mischaracterization of of my sort of outside observation of that? Or, you know, do you kind of view, um, you know, the artistic process as like, like, oh yes, this is work. This is not like, you know, the traditional definition of work, but this is like, you know, I gotta, I gotta sweat this out. I gotta like, you know, put, put myself into it in a way that, um, you know, some people would define as like, oh, a job.
7: Um, in some ways it's funny. Like I definitely, changed my songwriting approach um about a little over 10 years ago to be more uh like regimented and and more like um yeah like a little like workman like i guess yeah like you're saying um but i don't want it to ever seem like i'm yeah, this is definitely not a job. Like right, music right. is not like, is not my job. And it's, I'm like, insanely creatively driven. Like I, you know, I'm probably creating something, whether it's a shirt design or a song or something involving all of those things every single day. And I'm just like, pushed forward to do all this stuff with like, uh, you know, a, a a drive that like, sometimes I'm just like, Jesus Christ, should you slow down? Like it's, it's hard. If, If I could, I would love to be the Ramones and release an album every six months. Like that would be the shit. Like the fact that I have to like put out a record and wait two or three years before the next one can come out because of how people digest music or whatever is like, that's torture to me, you know? And, um, I mean, you can look back at Coliseum, which is obviously my previous band before Photo Crime. We released an, an outrageous amount of stuff, like five albums, but lots of EPs and splits and live records and just all this stuff. I mean, maybe too much stuff because, but it was like, I just love doing it. I love making songs and I love recording and writing and playing music and and. I love the sound of guitars and I love singing and I love writing lyrics. Like I love every single fucking part of it. And the part I don't like is I don't like trying to market it. And I don't like submitting myself to people. And I don't like all that kind of bullshit. Like, you know, I don't, I don't, I don't like the stress of like, will people come to the show? I don't like worrying about whether anybody's going to buy the record, all that kind of stuff. And, um, but every other part of it, I fucking love, you know, and, and it's just a drive to do it. And it's just what I do. It's who I am. So it's like, and that's luckily changed. I think for most of my adult life, I, I, my self-esteem came from music and if someone liked my song, it made me feel better about myself. And, um, in the last few years I've been very lucky to have had like a very massive Change in myself in every regard, and now I truly give almost no fucks if people like my music, and it's the greatest feeling I've ever had. Like, (laughs) you know, I, I, so now it's more just like it's what I want to do, and I want to to do all this, and it's less about the response and more about like I want to play a show, and I want people to be there, and I hope they enjoy it, and I'm doing it as part of the communal experience, but like it's it's what I want to do and I'm trying to make it happen. So yeah, it's it's not like, not that that's what you're implying, but it's not analytical and it's not calculated, but it's it's just who I am. It's what I want to do. And it's like, it's kind of hard for me to put it all out there in the public realm. That part of it is like weird to navigate social media and all that shit. But like, in terms of the creation and the activity, it's like, I fucking love it. Like it's it's everything to me. Yeah, that's, so it's, it's it's kind of like a, a driven joy.
6: Sure, sure. Yeah, that's the that's the north star. Because yeah, I, I I completely understand. And like, it, it's weird too because I think a lot of bands that um you Aww. know exist from the Midwest get kind of that sort of you know working class mentality that's like thrown on them. Where it's like, all right, I'm gonna I'm gonna go in there and you know really mm-hmm. really you know carve this song out from granted or whatever. And it's like you know right. It, it, <laughs> It's, it doesn't like, yes, it it can, there can be elements of that, but it's like, you know, yeah, most people don't, especially that are doing this, uh, you know, in our subculture that have no, you know, illusions of grandeur that they're going to be, you know, a, a huge band or whatever. It's like, yeah, that doesn't, that doesn't always apply.
7: No, I mean, you know, it's like, I'm not like, you know, peg boy working. Like I'm not like a, you know, a plumber and, and, and working class stiff kind of guy who like goes in and hammers it out. And I have, there has been a long period of time in music where it, I, I see it as trying to draw water from a stone where you go in with a group of people into a practice space once a week, twice a week, seven times a week, whatever. And you try to pull music from that. And you're working on music so much that you almost don't have a time on your own to work on songs or things. And i About 10 years ago, I found that to be just tiring. Like I kind of, I kind of, for the most part, reached my breaking point with that where I'm like, I just don't want to sit in here and play a riff with other people for four hours, you know, and I don't want to tinker on things with people. And I started writing music on my own, like on a daily basis. When I'm writing music, I write music every single day for many hours and that was when, for me, I felt that I became the most productive, and I write music the best, and um, I grew as a songwriter a lot. And, and that's how I continue to write. And obviously, it's kind of like developed to the point where it's just me. You know, I'm I'm like a yes. solo artist now. And and um, while I love the camaraderie of a band, and I love what other people bring to music, like for me personally, I feel like I am not as good as of a collaborator and that I do my best work by really refining what I'm doing with like a, a very, like very singular focus. Um, so, and then, you know, in that way, like it is workmanlike. It was, um, you know, it was 10 years ago that, you know, I was reading articles about Nick Cave having like his kind of legendary office that he would go and write in every day. And then there was a songwriter at the time I really liked named, uh, um, A.C. Newman, who was the the main guy behind the New Pornographers, and he was like a really great, or is still a great songwriter. And these people were people that write every day. And I know Will Oldham, who's Bonnie Prince Billy, I saw him the other day, and he's like, yeah, I'm not playing out right now, but I write every day. And if you're a songwriter, you need to be fucking writing music. You need to be working on it. And a lot of people I know as they get older, like part-time musicians, which is fine, but they, they have a hard time writing or they have a hard time writing lyrics because they're not in the, it's a creative muscle you're using all the time. And if you only sit down to write words every two years, it's going to be fucking hard and they're not going to be as good as they were probably. Um, so I find that like keeping that creative energy and that creative gear moving all the time is really good for me. And you know, demoing tons of stuff and coming back to it and 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 something that didn't work a year ago can work magically a year later, and stuff like that. so I, I, I love that. and and I like probably feel more of I, I feel more like a songwriter now than I ever have in my life, And I really love that. That's a great place to be.
6: Yeah, no, that's awesome. That And that was uh, something I was going to mention too, where it's like, you know, with photo crime, I, <laughs> I feel like, you know, f- for people that, you know, maybe uh, have followed your musical journey and then look at the music that you're creating now, um, you know, to a sort of untrained ear, just be like, Oh, this is, you know, this is a real left of center turn or what have you. But, you know, I mean, I, I, I see the direct correlation between all of them um, and the fact that, uh, you know, like you said, you feel more at home with this project that you have with anything else that you've done in the past. But it's obviously a culmination of all of those experiences in order to kind of hone it and craft into it. Um, I, I presume that, um, you know, you feel that way because of the fact that it's like, oh yes, like I'm technically better than I was when I was, you know, 15 years old from a songwriting perspective and the sort of, you know, experiences that added up to it. Um, do people give you that feedback of like, oh man, like, you know, this is a real departure from everything that you've done before. And, um, you know, uh, I, I guess kind of not look at you quizzically, but kind of have that, uh, reaction initially. A little
7: bit. I mean, I think, I think initially I thought that photo crime would be fully embraced by most of photo, but most of Coliseum, my previous band's fan base. And I thought that I could, those people that followed me for 12 years with Coliseum, I'd say, Hey, here's the next thing. And found out pretty quickly they weren't going to, you know, they just don't like, maybe that's just an algorithm thing or whatever, but like a very small percentage of photo crimes, fans, whatever they may be is, our our Coliseum fans. And that's actually fine. You know I mean? And I don't think it's a stylistic issue as much as it's just the, uh, the way people, you know, way people approach music now and like just kind of the, the wash of, of shit coming at you. Like, you know, I know that I'm that kind of person that like, you know, for every person that bought a Husker Du record, not that many bought Grant Hart records, you know, but he was still just as good of a songwriter, you know? And so, um, that kind of stuff, uh, is just how it is. And so there's a little bit of that. I think people that really followed Coliseum closely saw this coming with photo crime, you know, the last couple of Coliseum records had leaned into it, more right. synthesizer. Yeah. And they, you know, and the, um, but obviously there's just like a, you know, Coliseum is a heavy guitar, hardcore post-hardcore kind of band and and photo crime guitar is more of like the texture and it's just not the kind of same propulsive thing so there's a little bit of that and then a little bit of like people seeing it coming and being stoked on it and um so yeah i kind of want all of that and i've kind of been through that obviously the coliseum for a long time but through all the every band you do there are different fans and different friends there are bands that are intrinsically linked to your band at the time that you tour with and do records with and whatever, then you start over and some of those people come along and some don't. And, you know, I even had a little bit of that where like bands that were really a big part of Coliseum's existence. When I reached out with this, like, Hey, I'm doing a new thing. Check it out. Or, you know, when you come to the show, you know, they just dropped off and I'm like, okay, <laughs> you know, like yeah. I, that's fine. Like that's kind of how life is. And then there are tons and tons of friends that, that are there regardless, whether they like the music or whatever, they're, they're my friends they're for, up for 20 you. years through music. Yeah. So, um, and that's kind of how fans are and all of it, you know, I, I, and I wouldn't say that I'd say for me, photo crime is the best thing because the thing you do most recently is always your best thing but for a fan or for somebody else, like they can like whatever they like, like the first Coliseum stuff is this raw energetic punk, you know, hardcore D beat stuff. And like, it has a, it has a great energy and a great thing. And it's, and it's, it's good as what it is. And if somebody likes that and not the Coliseum record 12 years later, that's fine. You know, and and I'm not going to argue with them and, probably some of Colosseum's most loved songs or maybe songs that I don't even like, but that's cool. You know, like I, I, there is that element of, you know, the music becomes somebody else's in their way. Although for me, I do feel like the music is still mine. Like I don't, some artists, I, I read interviews with them and they're like, well, I give the song up and I, I don't feel that way. <laughs> like I, I feel like these songs are all mine. Like they're, they come from me but I'm happy to share them with people and for people to interpret them. And I love that. But, um, and in that way, like photo crime is the purest distillation of me. And I appreciate that. And I love when people directly connect to it in that way. I mean, um, last year I started playing solo as photo crime and it was the first time ever in my life I had stood on stage alone and performed and I was, Scared shitless and it was really nerve wracking. And it was like for this big European tour, and it was like, All right, I gotta do this. You know, I'm I'm embarking on a month long tour, and if I fuck this up, you know, this is bad. Right. And, I
6: got twenty nine more days of it. Yeah.
7: <laughs> right, exactly. Like like I you know, and it was just so fucking awesome, you know, and it it it, it directly connected with people. Like there wasn't anywhere for them to look besides me. So I had to engage them and entertain them. And when I communicated, you know, verbally between songs or, or through the music, like when I connected with them, I, I connected really well. And it was kind of awesome. And it was also that kind of thing where.
0: at purdueglobal.edu. is kind
7: of skeptical, you know, and I would have people come up and say, Hey, I, you walked on stage. It was just one dude. I was like, Oh, this is going to suck. And then I really liked it. And, and that was cool. I love to win people over and I love to directly connect with them. And, and that's how I feel about photo crime songs and records too, is that it's me making things that I want to enjoy and communicating ideas. I want to communicate in an absolutely direct way. And, Obviously that's been done by thousands and millions of of artists and solo artists throughout time, but for me it's a new experience and it's really rewarding and and really meaningful for me. I'm really appreciating it more and more as time goes on.
3: In a world where everyone is confined to their homes, society begins its largest bin watch to date. In the hallowed library of Hulu or perhaps on a shelf of DVDs you haven't looked at in a decade is a show that perfectly encapsulates life in the early aughts and launched a friendship that would inspire millions. Hi, I'm Zach Braff. And I'm Donald Faison. In 2001, we starred in Scrubs, a sitcom that revealed a glimpse of what it was like to survive
4: a medical internship. As Turk and JD, we explored guy love. Nearly 20 years later, a lot has changed. We're not supermen, but we're still best friends. Eh. Given the mandatory lockdown,
5: I'm excited to tell you about a new record from a band called Great American Ghost. That record is called Power Through Terror, and it just came out on E1 on February 14th. Happy Valentine's Day. It is a great, great listen. You can actually dive into the show notes of this and click on the link, and you'll be able to listen to the whole record. It makes me want to wash, mosh my face off, or mosh, actually, you know what? I, I don't know. I'm not much of a mosher. Maybe sing along. That's that's actually a better thing. So let's listen to a little bit of one of their tracks right now, give you a little taste of it pretty heavy right they are a great band from the boston area i actually had a discussion with ethan from the band a couple weeks ago if you want to dive back into the archives of this show to do that like i said it's a very very good record and it's worth your time so Stream it on Spotify. It is out now or wherever else you consume music. My, how about you buy the physical copy? The band's on tour right now. So thank you very much, E1. And now here's the rest of the show.
6: Yeah, no, that's rad. And honestly, I, I, from the outsider's perspective, it's it seems like that too. Like you, you project that, um, not only is it a feeling in your head, but in my mind, you're definitely projecting it. And that kind of goes to, you know, one of the last things I want to hit on was the... Um, You um, and you've expressed this in other interviews, and I I really, really appreciate that you express this because there's, you know, especially from the sort of aggressive music scene that, you know, we've existed in and been kind of uh, bred in. Um, this juxtaposition of, you know, being a, a tender and emotional being versus the, um, you know, the sort of uh, traditional trappings of what obviously it means to be a guy where it's like, oh, yeah, you don't you don't talk about your feelings. And, you know, because of our subculture, obviously, we've been able to do that a little bit more freely with our musical projects and kind of just putting your, you know, your heart in your sleeve sort of scenario. Um, but obviously in the real world, um, you know, people mostly see you know dudes jock mentality aggression like all of those things get connected to more male stuff um and it seems with photo crime you're obviously trying to put yourself more out there on that sort of um you know feeling of like oh yes like i'm this, you know, tender, emotional being. Um, And I want to obviously showcase that more than maybe I, you know, you were in the past. It wasn't like you completely weren't, uh, you you know, all your past musical projects were devoid of that, but it seems like you're leaning into that idea a little bit more. Um, Am I correct in that?
7: Yeah, I think so. I think so. Like, I'm, this is like a heavy question, right? So I'll probably, probably yeah, no, it's okay. It's okay. Like it's, I think there are so many different, aspects of that like for music i think coliseum from the get-go was extremely exposed and it was like when i started the band coliseum i was very depressed and 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 lonely and that was all about that and i remember a friend of mine uh at one point when i was in like a good relationship there's like wow what's what's coliseum going to be like when you're happy but the thing was is that like you know, there's so much going on. I mean, even the last Coliseum record was called "Anxiety's Kiss" because I was dealing with intense anxiety in my mid-thirties and and having a really hard time with all sorts of fucking things. Like it just it just popped up and like disrupted my life. And that record is a lot about that. And but it was still these are very aggressive. It was a, it was an aggressive band. And I remember a show that in like the mid 2000s that Coliseum played on tour, we went on tour with High and Fire. And at that point, the band was really ripping and aggro. And uh, this guy in the front row, when we were like breaking down our stuff, was like, what, you, what are you so angry about? And I was just like, what the fuck, dude? Like, this is hardcore. This is like aggressive music. You're at a metal show. Like, that not anger kind of like the, the the baseline for all this kind of stuff, you know, in a way? But at the same time, like um, I think Coliseum was very open emotionally. And for me being a person like right from like hardcore and punk and aggressive music and being a, a big person, like my physicality has always really been the forefront of my mind. Right. Like, my whole life growing up when I was a kid, people were like, Oh, you play basketball. You know And I'm like? No, I'm a weird art kid. I don't play sports, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And then as like a person in his twenties and thirties, I was like very big and, and, and burly. And people were like, I mean, you know, I walk into like a restaurant and somebody will be like, Oh man, you know, long wait. Why don't you kick some asses? And I'm just like, what the fuck? Like, I don't do that. Like, that's not me. And pretty much everywhere I go, my physicality is, 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 um, pushed upon me in this kind of masculine thing. And I've had like a big physical change in the last couple of years. And thankfully in my mind it's switched and I'm, and I'm, I'm less like insecure and less concerned about it. Um, on like an average day to day basis in like the public sphere, but, it's still kind of there and even putting yourself out as a musician, you know, people interact with you in different ways, you know, um, and how, how they relate to your physicality and your appearance. Like, you know, I mean, I don't even know, like I, uh, I'm a guy who lost his hair. So I shaved my head and I have a beard and, you know, like, and, and, you know, I've had a beard for, 20 something years. So it's like part of kind of who I am, but like, that's kind of perceived, perceived. Like when you see photo crime, you see this, like a tall adult man, you know? And, and that's kind of odd, maybe for like the, the type of like subculture that photo crime is operating in right now. You know, I don't look like Peter Murphy or something, you know, I like I'm not gaunt. Um, so all that is interesting and all that like affects me and my perception of masculinity. And I've always kind of hated the typical tropes of masculinity. And thankfully that's something that I learned from punk and from like the discord scene and, and from like the the music culture I grew up in Louisville and, and all that, like, you know, I'm not violent. I don't fight people. I don't, you know, I don't, I, I absolutely like hate guns. I'm just like, you know, I'm vegan. Like I am a person who believes in, you know, living and creating art. Like that's like, everything to me is about art and like to me fists and weapons are the anti art. Like they are things to, to, to bring things down to destroy lives and and structures and masculinity is so pressed upon me and I have to be so aware of it in good and bad ways. Like I have to be aware if I'm walking down the street and a woman is walking toward me that I can be an imposing presence. Inversely, if I'm walking down the street and I'm six feet behind someone, particularly a woman, I can be a threatening presence. And I need to be aware of that. I need to not make people uncomfortable with my presence. And if I'm at a show, I have to stand in the back because I'm six foot two and wide. So I don't, you know, I can't block everybody else and things like that. And so all that, in addition to how men treat me in this kind of like, bro way, like, what's up, bro? You know, that kind of bullshit. Um, I, I, I'm kind of constantly aware of that. And and that reinforces that feeling of like, I don't like masculine tropes. <laughs> like, I don't like sure this, like, we don't tell each other that we love each other. We don't hug. We don't, you know, we fist bump, like what all, all those kind of things, whatever they are, like I don't like them and I want to deconstruct them and I want to be the opposite of that. Like, I can't help the way I look like I am who I am. I'm, I'm happy with it. It's fine. But like, you know, I'm, I'm, I go through life in a different way and I go through life in a, you know, obviously a privileged way. Cause I'm like a, you know, a white guy who has, you know, a, a, a middle-class life now and, and grew up in like a middle-class world. And um, so I have every bit of privilege, but I also have to be aware of that. So, yeah, you know, with photocrime, crime, like there's this mixture of openness and honesty and songs like on the new record on South of Heaven, there's like Hold Me in the Night, which is like the idea of like the world is ending there are literal and figurative fires at our door and I'm fucking scared. And like, let's let, you know, I, I need to be held. Like I want that feeling. Right. Like I, you know, I, I, I need comfort and you know, that's not something that dudes are saying a lot or like, yeah, that yeah, I yeah. Hear in, 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 in heavy music. And, um, and then like the last song on the record is called, Tough skin, and it's kind of this. There's a lot of like truisms and, and, and lines about actual things I've thought or felt or situations I've been in. But the general idea of the song is like, you know, we have to keep. It's not just me. Like, like women, kids, you know, people in all sorts of different, you know, worlds. Like trans people, we're all supposed to keep this this tough skin up. We're not supposed to be. Crying, we're not supposed to be whatever. We're supposed to be smiling on the fucking internet and in person and in jobs and everything else. Everybody's supposed to be all cool, and um, so you know that's kind of what that song is about. Like we all pretend we have tough skin, and everybody is doing it. And everybody's expected to be doing it. And on the inverse, like we're in a world where, like, you know, over over sharing and like sharing to the masses. And it's kind of a weird thing too, that like, that I struggle with when I perceive it from other people and I struggle with it when I'm drawn to do it, you know, I mean I've written and deleted a million public posts about things that were bothering me or things that I thought, because I was like, I don't want to fucking share this in the public realm. Like I want to share it. It's a thought in my mind, but you know, it's not for everybody or like, it's not for everybody for me. Um, See so, yeah, I do I do very much want to break that down and I very much want photo crime to be not about that you know it's sure. like but also represent what I am like I'm not like a like I said I'm not like a frail say kind of dude like I'm I'm a I'm a guy you know like I'm I'm very much like you know yeah, your physical, right,
6: your physical, your physical nature. I mean, it's like I, I always, uh, you know, think back to like when I first heard like, you know, Propagandi, like they, you know, they had that song like I refuse to be a man. And like that was the first time where I like really actually grappled with my um, gender where I was like oh yeah, like, you know, but it's just like something, something as simple as that is going to be propulsive for people, um, especially that have never considered it. And like, you know, what you are what you are doing by putting that thought out there, um, is, uh, you know, is continuing the conversation and then hopefully maybe exposing some people to that idea of they need to wrestle with that notion of what their gender, um, means, you know, both positive and negative.
7: Absolutely. And, and, you know, and beyond just gender, just like ideas of, of masculinity and femininity and things that are kind of beyond even just gender, you know, and, and, you know, and and I don't write the songs with the idea of changing the world or really changing anybody or like with the idea of a message, but they're just things that are on my mind and things that I want to say. Right. And, um, but it is interesting. I mean, I, I I like talking about it because it's something that's important to me and, and something that maybe I don't hear from people that look like me that much. (laughs) Right. You know, and, um, and I've received some pushback, like some people I know, like a guy I know for a long time, but I see every once in a while, was at one of my shows and said like, he kind of like skimmed an interview in a local paper here about me. And was like, Oh, I heard your like songs are like anti-man, and you know, like oh, well, you know, like, and it was really funny, and I, and and um. So, if it's if it's challenging to people, that's good, you know. And I also have to figure out where I tread. Like, the first song on the the first photo record is called Nadia, and the idea of it was kind of like. The impetus was this, you know, the kind of endless like political bullshit and old men in power and, and, and their continued failure of like how they fail women, obviously with like, you know, like the right to choose and a million other things. And something that I said a lot before that song was, this is, I think it was something like, you know, this is about how men have failed women would kind of be like the something I said a lot. And somebody once said to me, a woman said, we don't need men to like, I don't remember what the, what she exactly said, but like, you know, we need, don't need men to save us. And I was like, you know, absolutely not. And that's not what I'm saying. You know, I'm saying more like <laughs> men have failed you. Not that we need to be your saviors, but like we have also, we, we also don't need to impede you. Um, but so I have to be aware with that and I have to learn, you know, and I have to like, if that was not the right way to phrase that. Or if these ideas aren't, um, the best ideas and then, then I can learn and change with that. And like, that's, that's as much as anything, like what I'm trying to do through music and through writing lyrics and through singing is like, I'm trying to grow. I'm trying to grow as a songwriter. I'm trying to grow as a person. I'm trying to explore my introspective world and my, out, and, and my outer world and think about the future and, you know, think about the dying planet and, and try to navigate that and and try to like find some kind of beauty and joy and entertainment in it, you know, and also just fucking write songs that people enjoy that like that can, that they can dance to or whatever, you know, like, um, so it's all kind of part of this journey of like trying to trying to grow as a person that that's like, that's my overall hopeful arc with music and art and words and everything that I'm doing.
6: Yeah, no, no, it's 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 beautiful. That's I, I think hopefully you know people that are are lifers and attach themselves to this creative pursuit. It's like that's that's what you want to try to do, <laughs> the continual evolution yeah, of it. Um, absolutely. The last thing I want to hit on was the fact that you know you are. A, I just I, I love when certain things follow people around in regards to like oh yeah like you know this person like you know loves stamp collecting or whatever. Where it's just like people often are like. Oh yeah, dude, Ryan, like, don't even try to mess with him on movie trivia. Like dude loves movies <laughs> in a way, like, you know, dude loves movies deeply. Um, the you know this is kind of a a, a sort of a fun question to end it of the you know in the past couple of years, um, you know one or two films that have really kind of you know impacted you personally, um, whether it was you know whatever your favorite film of 2019 or something that was you know came out recently, um, just because you know I think you obviously are are a uh you know a cinephile as they were so uh yeah what what are one or two movies that uh, you would uh, put out there for people to check out?
7: Well, I would say like this like last year 2019 i I think i don't know it's a lot of rad shit but like the movie queen slim i don't know if you're familiar with that but it's kind of like this
6: bonnie and clyde ish story yeah (laughs) like that really like
7: that i kind of hate trailers of movies i try to avoid them because they're not created by the filmmakers they're created by like a marketing department they're you know there's so many reasons that they suck but the Queen and Slim trailer. Every time it came on in the theater, I was like, "Fuck, this moves me." And that movie was just beautiful. Like it, it was, you know, it was it was written and directed by black women, and it, it was a, a a very a movie about black culture and black, you know, black life and oppression in in this moment. But in like a way that was not pandering, you know. I mean, sometimes I feel like movies that. Uh, particularly white culture starts to kind of pat themselves on the back about like, we all love this because we're woke. And it's like, okay, but like this didn't really challenge you. This was like, I mean, I kind of feel like that movie parasite this year was really great, but I also kind of feel like it's something where some weird thing where like a lot of middle America is like, Oh, okay. We understand class struggle, you know? And and like, we can accept class struggle in Korea in South Korea, but we can't accept it here. Um, it's like this distance of class struggle. Um, and I, Queen and Slim, I think was really under, underrepresented in terms of like people seeing it. And I just thought it was like beautiful. The score was beautiful. Like the shots, the, the situation they found the man in, and these two people and, and, and them navigating their own lives and, and kind of falling in love to this adventure. And like all of the, the, you know, the, the characters along the way, like, you know, Flea and Chloe Sevigny were awesome. And Bill Kim Woodbine is like this, this like wild, like pimped character, you know, it's like, that movie just struck me. And I, it was the first time I'd like cried hard in the movie too. Like at the end of that movie, I was like, couldn't move for a bit. And, yeah. um,
6: that's awesome. Yeah. I thought that was really awesome.
7: Um, and in the previous year, uh, well, actually this is probably a few years ago, but it's been a while, but mm-hmm. uh, The Handmaiden, it's a South Korean film by uh, Park chan wook who directed Old Boy and lots of other great movies. Yep. That's like, that's my favorite movie of recent memory. Just like absolutely gorgeous, like a plot that is kind of like so heavy, you can't really sum it up, and and, and so brilliant and like amazing acting and just like really, you know, dark sexually and like all this amazing Fetish, you know, fetish type things were amazing shots of like overhead shots of people in leather gloves, you know, doing, things. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, um, and that movie really sticks with me because I saw it. There's a local art museum here that has a cinema now that's like kind of changed my life. Cause they bring in great movies. And, um, mm-hmm. last week I saw an eight, eight hour Bela film there, like in the theater and it was awesome. I've never seen a movie. That might be the longest movie ever made. I don't know. Like, get to see a film that long in the theater was awesome. And I saw a handmaiden, the, I can't, I think it was the night of the, the election or maybe the night after the election and, and, and the, the Trump election. And through this time of like absolute upheaval and chaos and fear and like every thought in your fucking mind is about this election. I went in and saw that movie and was completely lost in it for two and a half hours. And it was just so wonderful because the movie was great. And I love that director and I feel like that's his best work. And, you know, is very like female empowerment and, and just, it was like beautiful and sick and, and all these great things, but just to completely lose yourself in it. And that's what you want with movies is like, you want to be completely immersed in it and, and have empathy for other people, but also just be taken out of your daily life. And it did that. And like, I'll never forget that feeling of like, I remember walking out and it was like, Oh fuck, you know, like we're still in 2016 or, and we're still going to have this fucking guy. And like, who knows what the fuck's going to happen. And, um, but yeah, it was really beautiful. I mean, I I think that like, I'm going to ramble tiny bit more, but like the film is so, is so important to my music as well. And like, it's the one thing that I kind of almost regret not exploring film as a career or, or some involvement in it when I was younger, because I just needed to have the concept that it was accessible. Like I did music, like I knew how to create music, but I didn't really know I could make movies or be involved in it. Um, but it, it's kind of my big passion and it's un, unspoiled, you know, or music, of course you're the deeper you get into it. Like Sometimes there are moments when it's harder to enjoy it and you just look at it with a critical eye or a pessimistic eye and, and some I'm ultra critical about, but I, I I love so deeply. and, And of course, like I, I want my records and to, you know, bands always say this shit, but you know, of course you want it to be cinematic and you want, you know, there are, are films that, that I want to create that, that mode in my songs and my songs reference and are about films and filmmakers. and I mean, there are songs on this record that are specifically inspired by certain movies. And, um, so yeah, it, it's, it's hugely important to me, but yeah, those are, those are two, The Handmaiden and, and Queen Slam Slim are a couple that stick with me a lot lately.
6: Nice. Nice. That's cool. Yeah. I just, the, I, I'm like you or you know, film is such a important part of my life as well. And I, you know, it, it's always funny cause like you, you can get obviously just as obsessed with, um, you know, film and directors and, you know, composers as you can with, you know, obscure seven inches and stuff like that. So it's, yeah, it's a beautiful, it's a beautiful world. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. Well, Ryan, Thank you so much, dude. I really enjoyed this and uh, getting to pick your brain and uh, yeah, thanks for being so, uh, so open. I really appreciate it. Absolutely.
7: Thank you, Ray. This
5: is really great. There you have it. That was Mr. Ryan. Thank you very much for coming on the show, Ryan. And thank you very much to Stephanie, his amazing publicist, for setting it up and uh, making it all happen. Like I said, check out the record. March 13th, South of Heaven, Profound Lore. Do it up. Next week, I will be having a great chat with Andy Othling. He is from Lowercase Noises, which is a project... That he does, and he also plays in a bunch of other bands. But um, he just is an incredibly insightful guy. And uh, we actually did this podcast live at NAM back in January, I think it was. Um, And it was really interesting because, you know, here we were surrounded at this huge convention center in this podcast booth uh, at Gator Cases. Shout out to Gator Cases. And it was, uh, you know, we were just, like, getting real, real deep about depression and uh, anxiety and, like, coping with it and being able to deal with all of the, um, you know, just the things that we deal with on a day-to-day basis. So uh, I can tell you that people were playing, you know, with guitar pedals all around us, but we were having a real, real human chat in there, and it uh, it was really special to me. So that's what we got next week. And, uh, as a programming note, I will be taking off two weeks towards the end of March, like basically last week of March and first week of April, because I'm going to be switching hosting platforms for this very podcast, but, um, yeah, just a little heads up. So until then, please be safe, everybody.
9: Hi, I'm Esther Dean. I've made my life by writing songs like Fireworks by Katy Perry, Super Bass by Nicki Minaj, What's My Name by Rihanna, just to name a few. And now I'm having an absolute blast sharing some of the knowledge that I've learned with upcoming songwriters on Songland on NBC. I'm excited to welcome you to a brand new season of Songland and Songland's podcast, giving you new insight into the magical art of songwriting told by some of the best in the business, and also the pioneers and the up-and-comers who will be shaping the hits you'll be listening to for years. We have an amazing roster of talent this season. I promise you, you don't want to miss one single episode. Don't miss Songland, Monday nights at 10, 9 central, and join us here on Songland's podcast, available every week after the show on the iHeart app, or wherever you get your podcasts.